0: Well, I want to begin this morning by telling you of the great fun that the Brandon household has had this past week. For the past several weeks, my eight-year-old son, SR, has been bothering me in a good way about building something for him. And I didn't exactly know how to build this. So what do you do when you want to build something but you don't know how? What do you do? You go to the internet, right? Right? And so I went to the internet and I found out some information about this, and I still didn't quite know. So, what do you do? What's your second form of action? We don't know how to exactly build something, and you've gone to the internet and you haven't. Instru- what do you do? Well, you call Doug Sosnowski. Here's what you do, because Doug can build anything. And on Monday, it's my day off. Sure enough, we built something. This is what we built. Okay, now what? What is this, because You can't answer. What is this? Do you have any idea? It's a water bottle rocket launcher, is what it is. And um, here's here's how it works. You, you set this on the ground like that, and uh, I've got this. I got this deal. Let's see if I can, if I can pull this all out. SR here. And what what the idea of this is is that you, you take a. There uh, we go. Excuse me. Just a second here. Bear with me. This is show and tell day today. You fill... Here we go. You fill a bottle with water. We don't have any water today. But you fill it with water and you, you click it down into here, which is like a fast release deal, and then you take your pump... And you, you attach it here to your water bottle rocket launcher, all right? And you just start start pumping. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to happen. What happened, Sr? I didn't put it on enough. Yeah, let's see if we can get it going. Okay, we, we pressure it and pressure it and pressure it and pressure it because that, that's like a, that's like a little launch, okay? We've got this thing like 100 feet in the air, I'm guessing. And uh, we do have a little problem with uh, stability in that it goes up and it starts flying around. In fact, one time I remember it going up and around and like landing on SR, landing on Carissa and and kind of trying to hit us. And I'm not going to pump this too high. But uh, I'll just let that that sit there for a while. But that is a water bottle rocket launcher. And afterwards, SR has volunteered. He's going to give demonstrations of this with some water way out in the parking lot. You can... You can have some time, fun time with that. So, why did I tell you that? <laughs> Any idea? Why did I tell you that story? Because it illustrates perfectly what's happening between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus has been ministering to the people of Israel for three years or so at this point, And uh, some tensions have been mounting between Jesus and the religious leaders. There's been this pressure that's been built up just like this. It's getting more and more pressure all the time. It's just building up and building up and building up. And we first get wind of this back in Matthew chapter 12. The man came into the temple with a withered hand. And it says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus healed that man. And in chapter 12, verse 14, it says that the Pharisees went out and counseled together how they might destroy Him. And the tension has been growing increasingly. They claim that Jesus' power came from Satan. They tested Jesus by asking Him to show Him a sign. They they tried to trap Him by asking Him controversial matters which would get Him in trouble with the King. The pressure has really intensified these last few weeks, beginning in... This last week, actually beginning in Matthew chapter 21, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey, he received praise from the multitudes and they hated that. In Matthew 21, verse 15, the chief priests saw it and they became indignant. They said, Do you hear what they're saying? Stop this praise. Jesus, of course, didn't. They then questioned his authority. They said in chapter 21, verse 23, By what authority are you doing these things? And the tension is mounting and mounting. And Jesus responds to their accusation, not by reducing the tension, but by increasing the tension, is what Jesus is doing. He told the last three weeks, we've looked at the last three parables that Jesus has told. In Matthew chapter 21, He told the parable of the two sons. He also told the parable of the landowner. Last week we saw the parable of the marriage feast. And in each one of these, there was an explicit intention of Jesus to attack the Pharisees and build the pressure up between them. He wanted to expose the failures of the Pharisees to respond to God. He, He wanted to pump the pump and to continue to increase and expand this pressure between Jesus and the leaders And eventually, you know what's going to happen? Oops, here we go. Poof. didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. But at some point, Jesus will hang on the cross. What do you do when you pump a water bottle and it lands in the ceiling? You look on the internet and then you call Doug Sosnowski. We will will fix that. So I didn't... I didn't mean to do that, so we will we will make correction with that. But anyway, <laughs> how do I transition from that? <laughs> oh boy. Well, today we see at some point the pressure is going to launch, and that pressure is going to launch in Matthew chapter twenty-six. But today we see. These Pharisees taking their turn at trying to increase the pressure. They're going to come to Jesus and attack Him with three questions. We see the first question this week. We'll see the next question next time we're in Matthew. And we'll continue on the next questions. And they're asking these questions, not seeking information. He's not seeking information. He's doing, they're asking these questions with an explicit design to attack Jesus. They want to expose the teaching of Jesus and so that when Jesus responds, either the Pharisees will be upset at him or the Herodians will be upset at him or the Sadducees will be upset at him or the people will be upset at him. Somebody's going to be upset at him how Jesus responds to these questions. Indeed, if you look in verse 15 of our text this morning, we see that the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. Their, their explicit design is to trap them. And I have you to notice that this wasn't just a, a question out of the blue. This was a, a finely refined, well thought through question. If you look here in verse 15, it says, They counseled together. Right? Can you picture the situation with me? These Pharisees, perhaps in a room, you know, brainstorming, trying to rack their minds. Well, what kind of question can we ask Jesus to, to pin him down? You know, maybe they had some chalkboards back then, or maybe they had some paper, and they're writing down maybe ideas. Just kind of what comes to mind? Maybe we can ask these questions. And if some of the, the questions come, some of them are bad questions. Some people say, oh, Jesus already answered that one, or Jesus can answer this one easily by this. They start thinking through, trying to figure out what kind of, of question that they could ask Jesus and how they might ask it. And my first point this morning comes in verses 16 through 18. 16 through 17 actually, setting the trap. Because the Pharisees sought to set a trap for Jesus. And they really were masterful in doing this. They thought this through very well. First of all, they used flattery. In verse 16 it says, And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. They speak very kindly to Him, seeking to put Him on their side. And, you know, it's pretty commonly known that, you know, if you want something from somebody, you speak kindly to them. It helps them to see that you're on their side. In fact, I found myself doing that this week. In our flock groups, our home Bible study groups, we're we're reading through this book, A Journey in Grace. And it's a fabulous book And many people, I gave this to them, and in two days they'd read it all. And I've heard nothing but good things about this book. And, uh, in fact, I was on the Internet, and I, I found out that the author here, Richard Belcher, planted a church in DeKalb, Illinois. And being from DeKalb, I thought, you know, I'm really curious what church he planted and whether it's still there. And so I emailed him, and listened to how I emailed him. I said, Dr. Belcher, I'm a pastor of Rock Valley Bible Church, in Rockford, Illinois, and we've begun studying through the issues of the doctrines of grace in our home Bible study using the Journey in Grace as a book really setting our agenda. Things have been going very well. People have really loved your books. In the future, God willing, we plan on continuing on through the other journey books as they bring up such crucial topics for us to deal with as a church. See, I've spoken good things to him. I've, I've commended him and said, yes, I like him. I like his books. So now i got to another issue. I said, anyway... I was recently on richberrypress.com and read the sentence that described, while you were at Wheaton, you started a church in DeKalb, Illinois, and spent three and a half years pastoring there while you finished college in 1956. I said, I grew up in DeKalb, and I was wondering what church you started, and whether it's still around. And then I finished, may the Lord continue to prosper you in your labors. Just, I guess I'm doing a little bit like the Pharisees did, but I was doing it with a good intent. Just seeking to commend him and say, Hey, I'm on your side. What about it? He emailed me back and said he planted a church in DeKalb, which still stands today. And he also told me he's working on a 12th book, Journey in the Glory of God. That's for you, Gordy. Journey in the Glory of God, which will be in print in the next few months. And really, it was my kindness that led to his reply. Now, the Pharisees tried to do this as well. Their opening words were real positive. Look at what they said. They said, Teacher, you are truthful. You are truthful. In fact, Jesus said, in another instance, He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Never did a false word ever proceed from the mouth of Jesus. We can take the Bible and trust it as absolutely true. So the words from His mouth came, He is true. Next, He says, they said, you teach the way of God in truth. Indeed, Jesus was the one who had the words of eternal life. He was the one who brought the nearness of the kingdom. The fact that He was there, bringing and showing the way into the kingdom. And the way to God is through Jesus and through faith in His cross. And that's what He taught about. Next, these Pharisees said that you defer to no one. Jesus had the truth within Himself and didn't have any need to ask anyone about anything. I mean, he never had to appeal or debate or wonder what he believed, and he never changed his opinion. He deferred to no one. That's exactly true. Jesus, the fourth statement there, is not partial to any. When you become partial, you begin to fear what others think or, or will do or will respond to what you say. But Jesus feared no man. He wasn't partial to any. Jesus, in fact, taught people, don't fear them that can kill the body, but fear the one who what? can kill the soul. That's the one you need to fear of. And who is that? That's the Lord God Almighty. So Jesus wasn't partial in any way. It's not necessarily bad for the Pharisees to say these things about Jesus, but the motive behind them made it evil and wicked. It's called flattery. When you build someone up falsely so as then to attack him, and they were trying to trap and harm Jesus... Never before had the Pharisees admitted to these things. They accused Jesus not of being truthful, but being deceitful. He's doing this by the power of Satan. He's trying to deceive you, folks. They didn't admit that He was truthful. They didn't think that Jesus taught the way to God. They accused Jesus of teaching wrong things. Eating bread without washing your hands first why that's going to defile you and that's not going to lead you to God. They hated it when Jesus wasn't partial to any because they had attempted to intimidate Him on several other occasions, particularly the the time where they asked for a sign. Give us a sign from heaven. Show us, really, are you the Christ? They're trying to intimidate Him, but Jesus didn't fear any man. But when they were able to use these statements for their advantage, of course, they affirmed these things and really, that's what flattery is. One dictionary defines flattery as something that praises excessively, especially from motives of self-interest. They had a self-interest in mind. Their interest was to destroy Jesus, and so they used flattery. This, by the way, is what the adulterous woman used to entrap her victim. She said, hey, listen, everything's set up for you and me. This is the adulterous woman talking. And, and, and the husband is gone on a trip. And he's got a lot of money. And he's not coming home until the full moon. I myself, I've prepared the bed. I've put spices in the bed. I myself, I've made myself clean. Come, let's drink our fill of love until the morning. Look at all these good things. That's flattery. In fact, it even says in Proverbs 7.21, With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And what I, I would contend that what these Pharisees did was no less wicked. They've attempted to trap Jesus. right? They're trying to build this case so that Jesus will answer their question clearly. When He speaks forth the truth boldly without compromise, says, Jesus, you can't get out of answering this question because you're not partial to anybody. You speak the truth, so tell us. The answer to this question is... That's how they set the trap. They used flattery, but also, verse 17, they presented an either or option in the question, which comes in verse 17. Therefore, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Notice they presented before Jesus two options. They didn't ask an open ended question, they didn't say, hey, Jesus, tell us about your views on the tax law here in Judah. Or, even maybe more specific but still open ended, tell us about the poll tax. What do you think about the poll tax? The Pharisees didn't give Jesus this option. They gave him a multiple choice question with two options Is it lawful to pay the poll tax, or is it not lawful to pay the poll tax? In case you're wondering, what this poll tax was was a a tax upon every individual, it's like a headcount. Each year the Romans demanded a tax from every citizen of the country. Not a sales tax, not an income tax, not a business tax. A tax levied upon every individual in the country. Those with bigger families had more tax to pay the poll tax. Because one for every household. And the Jews, one for every person in your house. The Jews hated this tax. And they would have loved to have eliminated it. In fact, in in 6 AD, there's a man named Judas of Galilee who rose up in protest to this very tax. Josephus tells us that he was saying this taxation is no better than an introduction to slavery. Because we're being enslaved to the Romans, because we're giving this money to the Romans, one for every person that we have. Judas also exhorted the nation assert your liberty, assert it. Let's revolt against this tax. Judas said that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. To give money to Caesar was in effect supporting this false god, the Roman gods. And many bought into this revolt. But you know what? It met a terrible end. Many died. Nothing was changed. And we're told in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, that Judas himself perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. Now, 30 years later... This is still an issue for the Jews. They hated this tax and wanted it to be removed. The Romans loved the tax. They thought it was needed. right? It supported the infrastructure of the Roman government. It built roads and aqueducts. It helped establish the peace that the Jews enjoyed, protection from the foreign nations. And so think about Jesus. Either or. Is it lawful or is it not? If He says yes, who's going to be angry with Him? The Jews are going to be angry with him because they don't like to pay the tax and they'd like another Judas of Galilee to rise up or they want somehow to get rid of that tax. And what if he said, no, you can't pay the tax? Who's going to be mad at him? The Romans are going to be mad at him. Why? He's an insurrectionist. He's rebelling. It's a danger there. And, And these Pharisees were smart. Look at who came to the party. Back up in verse 16. I didn't comment on this yet. But here's what I'm calling. They arranged the witnesses. They arranged the witnesses. The Pharisees didn't go themselves. It says here that they sent their disciples to Jesus. And I think the Pharisees had a couple motives in this. Certainly, by this time, the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees was mounting. And if the Pharisees came asking this question, Jesus would immediately be suspect. You know, someone has hurt you or slandered you before in the past, and they come and ask and pretend to be all kind. What do you do? You're like, I don't, I don't think that, I don't know. There's something else going on here. If the Pharisees would have come, they may have been like that. But maybe for the disciples of the Pharisees to come, maybe this would be a little less threatening. But also the disciples of the Pharisees would be a credible witness to what Jesus said. Right? If he said, yes, it's lawful to pay the tax, siding with the Romans, these disciples of the Pharisees could come back and say, hey guys, he said, yes, let's get the people and stir the people against him. These disciples of the Pharisees were to be instigators and witnesses to the response of Jesus. But there was also another group of people the Pharisees brought. These are called the Herodians. It says it right there in verse 16. Along with the Herodians. Now, the only place the Herodians ever mentioned in ancient literature is right here. Um, josephus also mentions it once but it's doubtful whether he's talking about these people here all we can surmise is that these people were followers of herod as their name suggests herodians followers of herod they were probably representatives of the roman government and i think they came by invitation by the pharisees they said hey you want to get this jesus here we got an insurrectionist under hand why don't you come we're going to ask this guy a question and maybe you can be witnesses to hear what he says and I think that the Pharisees wanted them to be there so that they might be witnesses to what Jesus says in the event that Jesus sided with the Jews. The Herodians can go back to Pilate and testify that Jesus is a traitor of the nation. You need to destroy him, O Romans. Well, that's the trap. It's been set using flattery, presenting an either-or option, and arranging your witnesses. In whatever way Jesus responds, He says, yes, the Jewish hostilities are against Him. He says, no, it's the Roman hostilities that are against Him. Well, here we see Jesus, verses 18 through 22, diffusing the bomb. Jesus was not caught off guard by their trap. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew their plans and intentions. And that's what it says right here in verse 18, right? He could understand and knew and saw through into their hearts what they were planning. It says here that He perceived their malice. He knew that they weren't coming seeking genuine help. He knew they were using flattery. He knew this either-or option that was presented before him was a, intended to a trap. He knew that it wasn't an accident that the, the representatives from the Herodians and representatives from the Jewish leaders were there. He knew that it was a, a trap. That's so what he says, perceiving their malice. And then he said in verse 18, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? They were acting like they were interested in knowing about taxes. They wanted to trap Jesus. They put forth this false appearance of virtue, even though evil intent was in their hearts. Isn't that what hypocrisy is? Playing the part of an actor? But you know what? That's another sermon for another day. When we get to Matthew 23, I'm going to expand all upon what hypocrisy is all about. We'll leave that for another day. But I love how Jesus answered the question... He said, show me a coin used for the poll tax. I find it interesting here that Jesus couldn't reach into his pocket like I can and and pull out a coin. Jesus had to ask somebody. Maybe it's because he was poor he didn't own a coin. Maybe Judas had everything. I don't know. But they they brought him a a coin. And uh, it was a denarius. This is a quarter, okay? He brought a denarius and uh, he put it before everybody and with an object lost in front of everybody, he said, okay, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And what would you say? Washington. They would say, Caesar. And at the time of, of Jesus, when he walked the earth, there were various denarius, denarius, uh, denarii, I guess is what it is. Some had the images of Caesar, some had Augustus, some had a commemoration of the victory of Pompey. But in this case, it was Caesar who was on the coin. And this coin would have been similar to ours. There's a, an image on it and words around you. Ours says, Liberty, in God we trust. In the back it says other things, E Plurinus, E Pluribus Unum. Right, Quarter dollar, United States of America. Their coin would have had an image of the emperor on here, of Caesar, and the following inscription. It would have said something like this, Tiberius Caesar... Son of the Divine Augustus. Now how would a Jew hear that? Son of the Divine Augustus. Divine? Godly? They would have heard that as blasphemous. It would have been very offensive to them. Because they're calling Augustus God. And in fact on the back side of it, it says Pontifex Maximus. Translated High Priest. So they would have understood that. But the Jews knew that the high priest wasn't Caesar, right? The supreme ruler wasn't Caesar. It was God. And the supreme ruler shouldn't be the Roman authority. It should be our high priest. It should rule us. And so the coin was very offensive to Jesus. In fact, that's why, to the Jews, that's why they had this stirred insurrection. Because they hated what it said and they wanted to rebel against that because everything is God's. We need to give it to God, not to the pagan authorities, And then Jesus said, the climax of the story here, verse 21, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In effect, Jesus was saying this. Listen, if the Romans minted the coin, fundamentally, whose coin is it? It's their coin. How did you get it? Somebody gave you the coin. It doesn't harm you in any way to give that coin right back to them. You're not defiled by that action. It is lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar. And Jesus also said, there are things that are God's. And the things that God has given to you, you ought to freely render. That word render is just to give back. It means give back to God. So the things that Caesar has given to you, you give back to them. The things that God has given to you, you give back to Him. Response was masterful. He spoke the truth. He taught the way of God in truth. He deferred to no one, wasn't impartial to to any, just as these Pharisees had expected. And his answer satisfied both, the Pharisees and the Herodians. In fact, we see that they're satisfied. Verse 22. Hearing this, they marveled. And leaving him, they went their way. They said, wow, that was a good answer. They left, they went their way. Though it is interesting, later, they would use his words against Pilate. Luke 23, verse 2 says, We found this man is misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Is that what Jesus said? It's not. But they were so intent on trapping, regardless of what he said, that's still how they were going to trap him. So now, it brings us to my third and final point this morning, and we really have run out of verses but I'm going to apply this to us. There's massive application here in these words. What Jesus did would not be unlike me, bringing this quarter before you and say, whose likeness is on here? And you say, Washington. And I say, okay, then render to Washington the things that are Washington's, but render to God the things that are God. Two huge applications can flow right out of this text. First one, render to Washington the things that are Washington's. Second, render to God the things that are God's. Easy, right? The difficulty is when you try to figure out what types of things are Washington's and what types of things are God's. Certainly, Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth, the world is the Lord's and all it contains. So there is a sense where everything's in God's possession and we ought to give back to Him everything that He's given to us. And all that we have of all of creation ought to be used for His kingdom and for His glory. But this doesn't exclude the government. That's where Judas was wrong. Judas of Galilee. It doesn't exclude the government. We're not to be another Judas of Galilee, protesting against the government because everything's the Lord's, and we can only give to the Lord. God has ordained the governmental rulers of this land. Romans 13.1 is clear. There's no authority except from God. There's no authority except that which comes out of God, from God. And it continues on, "...and those which exist are established by God." The authorities that we have that are existed are established by God Himself. And Paul wrote to the Romans, "...and told the Romans in an immensely po- hostile political environment..." He said, listen, pagan Roman authorities have been placed there by God. Even Nero, who persecuted anybody who named the name Christian. Even Diocletian, who had come 300 years later, who issued an edict that all Christian churches should be destroyed, all copies of the Bible burned, all public offices taken away from anyone claiming to be a Christian, all civic Civil rights deprived from Christians and all Christians without exception must sacrifice to the gods upon the pain of death. Even Diocletian was established by God. And so next time you complain about your taxes, think about the fact that God ordained the rulers to tax. Next time... You want to complain about a particular politician. Who knows who will be in the office four years from now. Who knows two years from now what kind of politician will be there. Next time you, you complain against somebody, realize he's God's man you're complaining against. And we ought to speak highly of them. We ought to render to Washington the things that are Washington, and we ought to do what Paul says at the first half of Romans 13, verse 1, when he said, render your submission. He says, let every person... Be in subjection to the governing authorities. And I simply say, Rock Valley Bible Church, submit to the government. Pay your taxes. Obey traffic laws. Pay your dues. Be a model citizen who gives back to the society much more than you ever took in. Act in such a way that all governmental authorities look upon you with favor. You know, I told you, I think it was at the beginning of the year, that I went to Los Angeles And I got to ride around in the police car and ride around on the LAPD. And uh, there was one point where we pulled into kind of a a strip mall gas station. We kind of pulled in, and there was this other policeman talking to some gang members, just trying to talk with them, develop a repertoire with them, try to find some information. And we're just in this car, probably watching these these guys probably 100 feet away. And this guy walks up to the the left-hand window where my friend is a, a police officer, was there He leaned in the window and he says, he said something like this. He said, "I just want to thank you, guys, for your service you render to, your, to our community, the sacrifice you guys make. I want to thank you for that. In fact, I go to the church on the way over here, which is Jack Hayford's church, big, prominent church in uh, Los Angeles. I, I, I go over here to this church, and I just want you to know it's a church we pray for you, and we thank the Lord for you, and God bless you and keep doing a good job. Is that a model citizen? That's a great citizen. So when the Los Angeles police officers, if they get that kind of hearing, what do they think about Christians? They think Christians are like law-abiding citizens. They're good. And we ought to be model citizens. I think that's part of giving to God the things that are God's. Giving to Washington, giving to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Giving to Washington the things that are Washington's. And of course, there is an exception. We don't need to submit of all times if there are things against the law like witnessing like holding house church meetings, certainly we ought to transgress the law because God has told us not to forsake the the assembling together. He's told us to proclaim His Word. But in large, as much as we can, we need to render your submission to the government. Also, I just say this, get involved. My tendency as a pastor of a church is I fail in my civic responsibilities. I, I tend to focus so much on the second admonition to us here that render to God the things that are God's that I almost I forget the first half of this. Right? I think in some ways this comes about because my conviction that the only real eternal good that will last for people is the good done for their souls. I mean, what good does it do ultimately if we work really, really, really hard for a moral America? What, what good does that do? It sends people to hell in comfort. That doesn't do a lot of good. We might as well put a padded cushion on the electric chair. That's what we do when we push a moral agenda, believing and trusting that's going to change everything. And yet, okay. And yet, I say that that's what renders me on on the one side. But I just say, you know what? Maybe we need to balance and see our civic authorities to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There is a clear application for us here to be involved in civil affairs. Now, you won't hear me saying this very often. Perhaps I like to take the biblical balance and the predominance of the bible talks about our eternal souls and state of that but this text here is talking about the government and our role of the government so today i'm preaching my once in a decade message upon your civic responsibilities to be involved in the government think about different ways you can do this you can vote if you didn't vote in this past election shame on you we as a church provided applications there back there for you to vote And if ever there is a law or anything that's passed, you ought never to complain because you said, I don't care. Anybody can be there. You ought to vote. That's a way to make your voice be known. You ought to do this by communicating also with your governmental representatives. Write your senators. Write your representatives. Let them know where you stand. Write your newspapers. Do what you can do in the public sphere to affect things. This past week, I attended an NIU football game on Tuesday with my children. And was it cold, Carissa? It was very cold and uh, the, the game was a good game who won the other team the Toledo Rackets. the Rockets won and it was bad and you know they, they did good in the first half the second half they fell down but the halftime show was terrible and I'm telling you I've never been stirred in my soul before to anger I would say that it bordered on being pornographic actually and uh, I wrote, came home, talked to my wife that night, and I said, i got to do something. i just got to do something to speak against this. And so I wrote a letter to the Northern Star, which circulates among the campus in IU. I, I wrote a letter to the Daily Chronicle, which is the, the paper for DeKalb-Crowney. And this is what I wrote. I said, Editor, I attended the Northern Illinois University football game this past Tuesday night. Certainly, I was disappointed by the loss to University of Toledo, however, I was much more disappointed by the halftime performance, which bordered on being pornographic. It's one thing for someone to choose to watch pornography in their homes, another thing for a crowd of thousands of people to be exposed to such explicit behavior, especially my children, whom I brought to the game. Thankfully, they were clueless and kind of talking to us. So I was like, What is that? What's that? I said, I can only hope the Husky Marching Band will choose to perform more appropriate material in the future. It was printed last Thursday in both papers. And fortunately for me, I think there was another guy who wrote one that was in uh, the the uh, Northern Star as well. So just so I'm not so far out there. It was terrible. I also sent one to the leadership of the Husky Marching Band and got a reply back. And, and the reply back there was this. said, I'm sorry you didn't like the show. We tried to provide a large variety of shows. And I wrote back and I said, no, no, you don't understand. It's not about liking like I'm going to like other shows. It's... A, it's It's a deal with what's appropriate. That was totally inappropriate for what you did. I did so in a much kinder tone of voice. But I think as Christians, we need to bold and let the world know what's right and wrong. We can decry the the moral slide of our society and just be quiet. Say, oh, look at how bad it's getting. Look at how bad it's getting. Why don't you tell everybody how bad it's getting so that people at least know they're going down the wrong way or not. I think about yesterday's paper. Front page of the paper. The, the Rockford Register Star. You saw the front page of the paper. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can talk about air Fat and stuff like that. But here's this very interesting thing here. Dave Severson. Casino fans and foes debate. Scores of partisans on both sides of the debate over gambling turned out Friday for a public hearing on proposals to establish a, raw, a riverboat casino in Rockford. Senator Dave Severson said the specter of an American casino, Indian casino just across the state line in Beloit represents a threat to tourism in Rockford, which is why he's changed his position on the issue. Jan Kloss of the anti-casino group Concerned Citizens for America said the casino proponents downplayed the social costs, which are more serious than they think. I've not done a lot of research on the gambling stuff, but everything I know is that the social costs And the implications on our society is terrible if that comes to case. Maybe one of you will say, you know what? Maybe I'll be the one who, in Rock Valley Bible Church, who does some research on this and figures out what's up with the gambling. I'll contact this Jan Kloss and figure that out and understand it and study it and maybe present something to the church to mobilize us so we can have petitions so we can keep that evil from our city. That's a way to get involved. I think about it another way. I received an email this past week from uh, Luke Herman, who comes to our church. He's a, he's a medical student at the uh, the school in Rockford. He's not here today, I don't think. Are you, Luke? I don't think so. He's a, he's a medical student there at the School of Rockford, and he's also getting a, another degree at the same time at Trinity International University in bioethics. He was real concerned about bioethics and he sent to me this email about uh, stem cell research. He said, this week in the public, in the the Illinois Senate or whatever, there's going to be a bill that specifically states research involving the derivation and use of human embryonic stem cells from any source, including somatic cell nuclear transplantation, shall be permitted... This email said, This is a wolf in sheep's clothing it is a blatant attempt to foist human cloning on the good of the people of Illinois. It clearly condones human cloning, encouraging abortion for research, and betrays an ignorance of stem cell science. That's coming up this week. Boy, write your senator. Tell them, I- I'm against this. At least voice that. Maybe you'd be interested. Maybe, maybe you could do something. little like that. I mean, I think also about other ways, other things that we can do. I just wrote down a little list here. I'm sure they could go on and on. Run for public office. Volunteer at the Pregnancy Care Center. Help coach a youth team. Impact the society. Serve on the Rockford Rescue Mission. Volunteer your time at the local hospital. Bring the gospel to those in jails. Open your home to a family during Thanksgiving. To those without family during Thanksgiving. Adopt a child into your home. Why not do that? In fact, I heard there are 70 million orphans around the world. 70 million. And if every professing Christian family in America, professing Christian family, would adopt one child, no orphans worldwide. Maybe adopt a child into your home. Get involved in your local school. Particularly parents sending your kids to public schools, get involved. Get to know those people. Volunteer to help U.S. Representative. Help with the polling stations to vote. Sign up for Big Brothers, Big Sisters. I mean, the list goes on and on, and maybe you'll think of things you know, go to a nursing home. Go to, think of something that you can do to impact the society beyond just the cloisters of our church. You can't do all those things. Certainly you can do some of them. I heard an interview this uh, month and a half ago. D. James Kennedy. I searched it down on the internet. It's very interesting. He, he, he spoke with a guy. His name was Gary Cass, who is a pastor of a church in uh, El Cajon, California. And uh, he asked him about his political involvement and it's very interesting. He says uh, to a question, Dr. Gary Cass said, you know, it's kind of an interesting sojourn because it certainly was not a part of my theological training. I just saw that Christians needed to be able to speak out on the issues. So I got busy in doing that and in the process felt convicted that I as a minister had a duty to be on the local school board. So he decided to run for the school board. He said, I wish I could say successfully. But the first time he ran, he was defeated. The second time he ran, there was a pool of eight candidates, and there was only one going to be elected member. so I ran, and he came in second and his dad, his son said to him, "Dad, well, at least you 're the first loser." That's what he said. but by God's grace, the help of the saints, maybe a little bit of stubbornness. He said, "I ran a third time. I was able to be elected to the school board, and so that started a very exciting time. I was the lone conservative on a Christian on the board. Think about this: this district they had been very contentious and the media loved to keep things stirred up. This started an adventure. Does that sound familiar at all? Like a very contentious school board, media loving to stir things up. Does that sound like any familiar? It says, no more than a couple months into my tenure on the board, they tried to bring forward some very provocative policies relative to homosexual agenda. Some of them deal with non-discrimination, but finally, some of them actually dealing with the curriculum and content Fortunately, because I lived in that community for so long, I was able to call a lot of my friends who were pastors. And I told them that if they cared about their kids in the church, in their church, and what was going on and being taught in the schools, that they needed to show up for their school board meetings. In the course of three school board meetings, we went from 500 to 800 to 1,000 people begging the school board not to pass these policies. But because the Christians had not been involved up to this point these other elected officials were beholden to another group of people it was a real wake-up call because even though we had the numbers we had parents we had students we outnumbered them ten to one in those meetings nevertheless the board voted against them and implemented those policies now little did they know that that was the worst thing they could have done because they began a recall process and they tried to recall the chairman of the board. And through that process, it was unsuccessful because of a clerical error. He said, that movement helped us to connect with others who agreed with us on these issues. And out of that failed recall effort, we were able in the next election cycle to get one more Christian on the board. In the year 2002, we took complete control of the board. It had four Christians on the board. And this was spoken before the election. He said, in the election cycle coming up, it looks like we'll have 5-0... Christian board. Because exposing the falliness of people. Listen, I don't want to run for school board. I can't, okay? I am too busy. I've not got a heart to do that. But but maybe some of you want to run. And what a wonderful thing it would be if we can have Christians there in the area of influence being on the news and then speaking about Christian things and what's right. At least telling the society what's right and what's wrong. Perhaps if we focused our mind upon rendering to Washington the things that are Washington's, maybe our society wouldn't be in the slide that it is. And I think there are Old Testament examples for this. Joseph was involved in the administration of government, totally above reproach. Daniel was involved in the government. He was like second in command over all. There's... There's legitimacy for this. I think about the kings that pushed hard a moral agenda. You can read about Hezekiah. He steps into office first day and he reinstitutes the worship of the temple. After the temple got up and going, I told you about this last week, 2 Chronicles 30, he instituted the Passover. And in 2 Chronicles 31, he destroyed the idols. Here's a king pressing what's right and what's wrong and God blessed him and Josiah did the same I think that perhaps this verse is calling us to render to Caesar the things that were Caesar's. And I think we need to understand a little bit of our corporate responsibility. One of the things the Bible talks about is that God judges cities and that God judges nations for their wickedness. Read today when you go home, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel was an upright, moral, righteous man, and yet when it got to it, when he knew that he was going back into the land, he prayed in Daniel chapter 9, and he himself confessed the sins of the people of Israel. Because he felt them upon himself as well. Don't think that the abortions that take place in the city don't affect you. You remember when Abel was killed? The blood seeped into the ground, and that blood was calling out to God for vengeance. God, take vengeance. God, take vengeance. And that blood that's spilt in the abortion center in Rockford is saying, God, take vengeance upon Rockford who would kill all their babies. It's crying out. It has implications upon us. And we need to understand there's a, a corporate identity that we have to where we live. Now, here's, here's, i just throw this out. Okay, I don't know where this is going, but I believe in DeKalb where Avana used to live, I believe that abortions are illegal in DeKalb County. And in fact, we worked with the Christ Pregnancy Center down there and people would come up here to have abortions because it's legal up here. It's illegal down in DeKalb. Now, I don't know about this. Maybe one of you might have a heart to look into doing, thinking about the same Winnebago County. Why don't we just make abortion illegal in Winnebago County? That would solve the blood problem on the streets. I don't know. I'm just throwing this out here. It's ideas of ways in which we can have some civic responsibilities here. It's doing something to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If nothing else, do you pray for your governmental leaders? Uh, perhaps we need to work harder at this, but in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul clearly tells us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, says, he says, I, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And they need to find some of these men. It says, for kings and all who are in authority, we might lead a quiet and tranquil life. We need to pray for our kings. And this government there was far worse than our government is today, I believe. Can you at least pray? Can you do something to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? All right. There's, There's my sermon of the decade, okay? But let me warn you a little bit on this, all right? You need to be careful about these activities, I think if someone's involved in that, you ought to fan the flame and encourage them with that because it will help our society. But you need to be careful. As much as we may strive for a moral America, a moral America saves nobody. Like I said, it puts a cushion on the electric chair. It doesn't do anything. Case in point, the Pharisees. Of any people that ever lived in the world, the Pharisees were the most moral of any people. They were more scrupulous in the way they dressed than anybody. They took more care in the things that they ate than anybody. They made sure they kept the Sabbath more stricter than anybody. They worked harder at memorizing the Bible than anybody. They sought to uphold morality, and they had a zeal for God. And yet there's nobody who's ever received more condemnation from the mouth of Jesus than these moral religionists. And of all men, they're most to be pitied. And I think if Christians pour all their efforts into transforming society, of all people, we'll be most to be pitied because a transformation of society on the outside with morals isn't going to help anything. It's inward, it's in the heart. It's Christ transforming people from within, having a joyful countenance when being persecuted, having a willful obedience and submission to the government, responding to everything that God has done for us in Christ in a right way. That's what changes society deep within. That's only going to take place when God pours His Spirit out upon us. So you need to have balance those things, okay? There's some good in it, but... I think if you're submersed in that and you're totally involved in that, that becomes your message, your drum. You bang all the time. I say, you know what? Maybe you need to step back from that. Bang the drum of Jesus Christ. And I think, second point of application, render to God the things that are God. Focus your attention first and primarily upon the things of God. Make church a priority. Make studying the Word a priority. And do the others as you have time. But my fear at Rock Valley Bible Church is that we would so consume you all with activities, this is the only place we'd be. We need to keep our activities somewhat lighter so that you're not here, so that you can go out and do things. And I think of these two, you need to focus your attention upon the things of God. That's the way Apostle Paul wrote, Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10. Therefore, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, do good to all men. Do good to all men. That means Christian, non-Christian. That means outside the church, inside the church. You just be one who's about doing good to everybody. But then he says, especially to those who are the household of faith. In other words, he's saying, he says, you've got to be good in society, and do good to society, and do good for society. But especially do good to the household of faith. That's the church. And I think the reason for that is because the church is what lasts forever. God's people do. The things of God are eternal forever and they're most of benefit to others. So I simply say this. Make a worship of God a priority. Spend time privately reading God's word and praying. Worship God in your families. Be faithful in your attendance at church. Render to God the things that are God. Listen, it's here that we're reminded of the glory of God and the sufficiency of Christ. It's here that we affirm that our works aren't saving us. The good things we do isn't going to do it, but it's the righteousness of Christ where we stand. Worship God. Make that a priority. Serve others in the church. If you need, fill it. If you can help someone, help them. Far beyond Sunday morning. Sunday morning is like the tip of the iceberg. If you only see people at church on Sunday morning, you're like not involved in church. You might come to church, and it's great, and we're glad to have you here, but it's the involvement in the lives of the people throughout the week. That's what church involvement is. Be around the people of the church. Have them over to your house. You know, if you're looking for a place to be involved, be involved in one of those home fellowship groups. Put you in other people's homes. Get you in their lives. Get you interconnected and figure out how you can help and serve. It's a matter of you beholding the need, having a heart to do it, and doing it. There's the text. And I'm short on the second application because I think that we as a church always focus on this and always ought to because the thing is priority, focusing upon our attention to God and the things that are God's. But I think there's much wisdom needed in this, you think? Knowing where to balance, how to balance, how to do good to all men, and how to especially be involved and do good to the household of faith. And I think we ought to, at this point even just pray for wisdom that God would give us a proper balance and understanding. I mean, I appreciate the heart sometimes of a lot of Christians who are out there doing a lot of trying to do social good, but you know what happens when those who are out there and kind of make that their whole thing? Oftentimes they're not faithful at their church, they're not grounded in God's Word, and what they're doing is actually drifting from the church, drifting from the truth. It's important to make God the priority that everything from that comes clean and pure and righteous as you act. And I know how how easy it is to be so interested in the, the things of the church That this is what we are. We're just us four and no more and close the door and just keep us. And yet there's a world out there dying for a need of a Savior. And we need to balance those things and may God give us the wisdom to do that. Let's pray before the Lord. God, I, I would pray right now that you would Give us wisdom to know how to balance giving everything we have to You because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And giving You all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our mind, emotions, and our will. Our lives, our pocketbooks, our families, our devotion, our love, our service. Think of Him. hymn, I love Thy church, O God walls before they stand, dearest the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. The church is precious and delightful in your sight, and Lord, we love it. And God, I pray you'd give us wisdom to know how much to love it and pursue it, and how much to affect change in society by doing our our part, by rendering to Washington the things that are our Washington's. I pray that we would be model citizens I pray that when we offend others, may we be quick to right that offense. I think even in this water bottle rocket, and my heart is heavy thinking of abusing this building that Rockford Christian High School has been so gracious to us to give. And would pray that just over the next few days, I might deal with that appropriately and come humbly before them and speak to them and make sure things are right. And I would pray in other issues, the church, the, the world, We've done wrong, may we confess it and make it right with our society. That people would look down upon us, not as antagonistic people who always tell everybody what's wrong with them, but people who have a genuine joy and a genuine delightfulness about them, a thankfulness and a desire to serve and help. And then when the correction comes with what's right and wrong, they will know our spirit and they will know our heart and they will know why we stand on the things in which we stand. God, give us wisdom, I pray. Give us wisdom to know how to do these things. We pray in the wonderful name of Christ.